our children exit for uh, children's worship, would you bow and pray with me? <clears throat> Holy Father, we thank you for the gift of our salvation. Thank you for your son, Jesus, our Lord and Savior, who has become our substitute and satisfied your wrath, which would be poured out against our sin. For outside of Christ, we have no hope. So as we worship you this morning, now through your word, we ask that you would speak. Holy Father, by your spirit, speak into our lives. Teach us the truth of your word. Cause our hearts to be drawn to it and to love it. Cause our minds to to be saturated with a love for your word and cause our eyes to see the deep truth of your word and let it let it impact our lives radically. Lord, would you do that this morning by your spirit? Would you move in our midst and would you impact our lives? And would you would you shape us this morning into worshipers who are truly set apart for your glory and captivated with a, a desire to worship you? With everything that we have. May it be done for your name's sake, for it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. If you found your if you have your copy of the Word of God, I want to invite you to open up to the Gospel of John. John chapter eleven, as we close out chapter eleven, verse fifty-five, uh, through chapter twelve, verse uh, verse eleven. And so the text this morning, you'll see the title is Worship Jesus. And then the subtitle is The Joy of Exalting Christ. And as I, I reflected on the text, I, I, I struggled with even what to title the message because it's, it's about worshiping Christ. And, and one, one thought that I had was we should, I, I should say, uh, experiencing uh, maximum joy by minimizing self. I thought, no, that's too long. And then I, I thought, well, the joy of exalting Christ, that's what this is about. This is about Mary and Martha and Lazarus experiencing joy as they worship the Lord. And so for Mary and for Martha, for Lazarus, there's great joy for them. And we see it first through Mary as she is worshiping and she is exalting Christ without any concern for anybody else. She just completely goes full abandon and she just comes before the Lord and she worships him. But let's first begin reading. If you found your place in chapter 11, verse 55, would you say word? Follow along as I read. Now, the Passover of the Jews was near and many went up to Jerusalem out of the country before the Passover to purify themselves. So they were seeking for Jesus and were saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think that he will not come to the feast at all? Now, the chief priest and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he was to report it so that he might seize him. Therefore, Jesus, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom he had raised from the dead. So they made him a supper there, and Martha was serving, but Lazarus was one of those who was reclining at the table with him. Mary took a pound of nard, very costly perfume, 
of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples who was intending to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor people? Now, he said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And and as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. Therefore, Jesus said, let her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. The large crowd of the Jews then learned and he was there. I'm sorry, learned that he was there. And they came not for Jesus' sake, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. But the chief priests planned to put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and they were believing in Jesus. We've watched the unfolding of Jesus' life and ministry through the first 11 chapters of the Gospel of John. And today we approach the third and final Passover of Jesus' ministry among his disciples. In fact, the Passover has kind of been a a theme that has recurred on two other occasions. It's kind of moved the narrative of John's gospel along. And so as you read through the gospel of John, you see the Passover come up again and again. And this is the third time that the Passover comes up. We've seen the struggle between light and and darkness unfold as John spoke in his prologue in verses 1 through 18 of chapter 1. Namely, that light has come into the world and the light will overcome the darkness or the darkness cannot overcome the light. In fact, we also see later in John's gospel, Jesus said that men love darkness and their deeds were evil. That's why they didn't come to the light. Nonetheless, the light of Christ has been radiating through the first 11 chapters. We even saw in chapter 9 where Jesus illuminates the the eyes of the blind beggar, turning his darkness into light. And we saw in chapter 11 where Jesus takes the dark night of Lazarus' soul as he had been in the tomb four days, and he calls him forth, and, and Lazarus receives life, and he comes forth out of the tomb. He called him back from the grave. And so here in chapter 12, Verse 36, Jesus will say, while you have the light, believe in the light so that you may become sons of light. The point is that Jesus, the light of the world, has entered humanity and we see this climactic point in his ministry. And the story that we read today of Mary anointing Jesus's feet is a testimony of her recognizing this light as she has seen it evidenced in her brother's life when he was raised from the grave. And so the story of 12, 1 through 11 is, is about Mary's worship and, and understanding and, and Mary's acceptance of Jesus' journey to the cross as she looks and sees his coming death. In fact, in verses 55 through 57, we get a clue as to the time and the context of the narrative. It says in verse 55 that the Passover of the Jews was near. In fact, that many Jews had gone up to purify themselves. And so in keeping with the tradition of Passover, the Jews were journeying to Jerusalem to go to the temple and to offer their sacrifice. So that as God's people, they would be part of this holy nation that was really set apart unto God. And so they would cleanse themselves in 
keeping with this ordinance, in keeping with partaking of the Passover meal, the pilgrims who are gathering for the feast of Passover in Jerusalem on this particular occasion really had no idea what this Passover feast and celebration would have in store. For this would be Jesus's final Passover. This would be the Passover where Jesus became the Passover lamb that they would celebrate. They were seeking for Jesus, verse 56 tells us, as they were standing in the temple, but he was nowhere to be found. In fact, most likely, we we should understand from verse 57 that as the chief priests and Pharisees had given orders that the, the people who were gathered there, the pilgrims, those worshipers who had come to purify themselves, they probably knew that the Sanhedrin had had devised a plot to seize Jesus. They had issued orders for anyone who knew of his whereabouts to come forward and, and to speak and to let them know. That's the setting of what's going on during this time of Passover. But we, we see in verse 1, meanwhile, six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany. He gathers there at Bethany with his 12 disciples. And as he's there with his 12 disciples, he's, he's, he's most likely there with his 12 disciples. And also Martha and, and Mary are, are there. And then Lazarus as well, we learn in the text. John doesn't tell us if, if anyone else is at the meal. There's been some speculation that, that maybe this was a, a meal to celebrate the work that Jesus had done in the life of Lazarus and, and of his family. And so the town has come together and several families in the town maybe have come together to celebrate and to hold a dinner in honor of Jesus and in honor of what he's done in Lazarus's life. But that's really just speculation. John mentions Passover here because he wants us to see that there's a there's a connection. He wants to establish a link for his readers between the great deliverance festival of uh, of, of Passover and of Jesus's death. And, and so this is John's way of of reminding his readers that the one who raised Lazarus from the dead is about to go to his own death. He is the sacrificial Passover lamb who will deliver his people from the curse of sin. He will deliver his people from death. And so John is pointing us forward to see that as we walk through this text. He makes these connections for us. He wants us to see, as he's already pointed out through the ministry of John the Baptist, when John says, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He wants us to see Jesus as the one who is the Passover lamb. One author writes the divine irony of the scene as they're sitting or reclined at the table is that Lazarus, the once dead man, but now living, sits at the table with Jesus, the now living man, but soon to die. The scene of our text is one of extravagant worship. It's one of extravagant worship. We see it in verses two and three. And verses nine through eleven. Henry Ward Beecher was a great preacher, the first pastor of Plymouth Church in Brooklyn, New York in the 1800s. During his tenure, uh, he had grown to, quite, to be quite a popular preacher. There were many crowds that would come and would sit and would listen to his preaching. They had come to hear this great orator of the word, this great proclaimer of the word. And one day he was going to be out, and so he had his brother come in who would be a substitute and supply the pulpit for him. A large audience had already assembled to hear 
to hear Beecher, uh, Beecher preach, and when the substitute pastor stepped into the pulpit, several disappointed listeners got up, and they began moving toward the back door. That's when Beecher's brother quickly, and witty, being witty, stood up, and, and he said loudly, All who have come here today to worship Henry Ward Beecher, you may now withdraw from the church. You may now go your own way. All who have come to worship God, keep your seats. Many people just kind of sat back down. You know, in verse 56 here of chapter 11, it tells us the Jews were seeking Jesus. You know, but but their motives for seeing him were less than pure. They had heard about what he had done. They had heard about this great miracle. and They, they wanted to see this great miracle working claim to be Messiah. Verse 9 confirms that they had heard of his fame as he had raised Lazarus from the dead and they were drawn by him and by Lazarus because of this miracle. Whatever their motives in seeking out Jesus, we can't say for certain. But we see an example of one who comes and offers extravagant worship before the Lord. And that example we see is in the person of Mary. She comes and brings just this radical display of selfless worship before her Lord as she comes before his feet. And verse 3 tells us Mary then took a pound of costly perfume, pure nard, and she anointed the feet of Jesus. And she didn't stop there. She then began to wipe his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. This is one of the greatest acts of devotion and selfless worship that we see, I think, in all of the New Testament. The adjectives that we would use to describe Mary's act of worship here are many. Adjectives such as lavish and deeply personal, humble, faithful, genuine, glorious, captivating, sacrificial, we could probably go on and on. You could probably think of a few adjectives that you would, you would use to describe this very wonderful time of Mary coming and very sensitive time of her coming and worshiping the Lord. Can you picture the scene? Jesus is there reclined at the table with the 12 disciples, with Lazarus, perhaps with some of the other men from close families in the town and they're They're reclined there at the table talking and carrying on when all of a sudden Mary approaches Jesus. And when she approaches him, she anoints him with this precious perfume. Now, Matthew and Mark's accounts, Matthew 26 and Mark 14, their accounts tell us that she didn't just anoint his feet. She anointed his head. Mark tells us she anointed his whole body. John tells us she anointed his feet. You know, I I think John draws our attention here intentionally to this humility that she evidences as she comes before her Lord. She's acting in in humility and in speaking of only his feet. John wants us to see that she comes humbly for for washing the feet of someone was reserved for the lowest form of the slave. Even a Jewish slave would not wash the feet of those in the house, they would have a Gentile slave do that unless there was no Gentile slave. And so here's what Mary comes and does. She comes and she begins to anoint his feet and, and wipe his feet. The text tells us in verse 3 that she took a pound 
which probably would be about 11 ounces, but it was, it was a lot. She took a lot. This was a, a very costly perfume. It was extremely expensive. In fact, we learn from Judas' statement in verse 5 just how expensive this perfume was. The perfume, it was, it was a 300 denarii, which would be about 300 days of a common laborer's wage, a whole year's wage. And so if we did the math today, just to try to understand, we, if we just took minimum wage, 725 times 40 hours times 52 hours a week, that 52 hour, uh, 52 weeks, that's about $15,000 for this 11 ounces, $15,000. She comes and she just comes to Jesus' feet and she breaks the cup and she pours it all. She, she doesn't keep any. She gives it all to the Lord. She, she wants to pour it all out before the Lord. This is an extravagant act of worship. What she is doing here is she is giving all to him. She is just abandoning everything and giving it all, laying it all at his feet. It was pure. John tells us it was pure nard. It, it wasn't just it wasn't just some nard that had been cut with oil. No, this was pure. It was it was refined. It was genuine. It was there was no additives in it. And what what she does is takes this pure nard. And it's a reflection of, of her heart before the Lord. She comes with a pure heart before God and worshiping Christ. And as she comes there to him, there's just this there's this purity and there's this genuine and there's this faithfulness in the act of her worshiping her Lord. And then she lets her hair down. She wipes his feet with her hair. Now, to understand the significance of what is happening here, you need to know that it wasn't customary for a Jewish woman to let her hair down in the presence of any man except her husband. It was thought that a woman's hair was a reflection of her glory. And so as she comes, she lets her hair down and and she she comes before the Lord Jesus and she begins wiping his feet. And as she does, she's using her glory in a beautiful way to serve her master. And she takes the lowest form of service and and she brings glory to Jesus in the midst of her humility, in the midst of humbling herself. This isn't to be seen as some seductive act, but it's to be seen as an act of true worship. It's to be seen as an act of extravagant abandonment. She held nothing back when it came to worshiping Jesus. Does this sense of extravagant abandonment characterize our worship this morning? Now, I don't want to cheapen the act of Mary here, for this was an extravagant act of worship. But we can see that there is a joy that that is within her heart and in her life that would cause her to act in such an extravagant way before the Lord. So the question is, do we approach Christ with an extravagant sense of abandonment? Are we worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ and with all that we are and with everything that we have? Verse 3 continues, the the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. And it's as if John, while reflecting back later on, maybe 70 or or 80 AD, when he writes the gospel, he's reflecting back on this account of what happened. And you know the, uh, 
you know the memory that, that can be recalled when you smell something, right? So you might come through a, uh, for me, uh, just one that sticks out to me is like antibacterial hand sanitizer. I, I know this is kind of out of left field, but follow me here, okay? Uh, antibacterial hand sanitizer. When I was in Katrina, uh, driving a bus, bringing people out of the city, that, that stuff was my best friend. But, you know, I, I did something I never thought I would do. I was sleeping at the truck stop in Laplace, the, the plaza there. I was sleeping there on a bus, driving into the city every day and driving out. And, and I use that hand sanitizer all the time. But to this day, every time I smell that, I'm reminded of sleeping on that bus, being at the truck stop, and walking through that time of Katrina. It's just, it triggers it, right? It's a, it's a natural trigger that happens. I can only think that perhaps while John is recording this and he recalls that smell of pure nard, what a fragrant offering Mary has brought before the Lord. And he captures that for us beautifully. It's, it's an offering that we speak of still today. Get the picture of that. Jesus is there eating and Mary, this woman, just comes and begins to anoint his body, anoint his feet. This is an offering that we get to see, one, one that is just extravagant in its pursuit and approach to Christ. The whole house was affected by Mary's lavish act of worship. Mary's worship was pure, it was humble, it was fragrant, and it was extravagant. But it was an offering that she gave to the Lord for the glory of God to bless Christ. Mary's action in anointing Jesus' feet is deemed by the world an act of great expense. But I want you to see this. The cost of nard, though it was high, and the cost of her social standing, perhaps uh, the cost of her social standing, perhaps even even higher as she humbled herself, was not too great for the cost of Mary coming and extravagantly worshiping her Lord. Think about Second Samuel t- uh, twenty four twenty four, where uh, David, King David, says to Aruna, uh, Aruna wanted to give him a, a piece of land so he could come and offer sacrifice before the Lord after he had taken the. Uh, the census, and had really, uh, he had sinned against God. And David tells Aruna, Aruna wanting to give it to him, David says, no, but I will surely buy it from you for a price, for I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God, which costs me nothing. What we see here is neither would Mary. Neither would Mary. She comes with full abandonment, wants to give extravagantly to bless the Lord. You know, her extravagant gift is nothing in comparison to the extravagant love that Christ offers through the cross. And she learns this. We see a second example in the text of of worship and adoration before the Lord. And I think that's the example of Martha. In verse two, we learn that Martha, it says, in fact, so they made him a supper there. As I mentioned before, the text is a little bit ambiguous. It's a third person a uh, plural pronoun there, they, they made, it doesn't, we don't know who they are. Maybe it's Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. Maybe it's more families from the community, but they made, they made him a meal. And whatever scenario we go with here, it fits, uh, it, 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 it communicates the point the same. And the point is they were honoring Jesus and they were coming there to serve him. You know, oftentimes it's Martha that gets kind of a, a bad rap, right? We think back to that text and 
in Luke chapter 10, verse 38. Martha gets a bad rap. We, we immediately think of Martha in light of a busy person. She's always uh, attending to the details of the gathering. She's always running around, getting everything in order. You know, and it's not without justification because Luke 10, 38 says this. Now, as they were traveling along, he entered, he being Jesus, entered a village. And a, a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. She had a sister called Mary who was seated at the Lord's feet, listening to his word. But Martha was distracted with all her preparations. And she came up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the serving alone? Tell her to help me. But the Lord answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you're worried and bothered about so many things. But only one thing is necessary. For Mary has chosen the good part, which shall not be taken away for her from her. I want you to notice something, though, in, in John's, John's account of what's happening here in the text. In verse 3, we don't read any words of Martha's discouragement or frustration, do we? I think that happened early on for, for Martha, where she was, uh, she was rebuked somewhat by Jesus, or at least instructed by Jesus. But, but John says nothing here of her worry or concern for Mary's actions in light of hers. I think this is one of the jewels of, of the text that we can miss if we're not careful this morning. We see evidence of Martha's growing faith on the heels of her confession in chapter 11, verses 25 and 26, when she said to him, or 27 rather, Yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, he who comes into the world. Martha has learned contentment, it appears, in her serving the Lord. She's come to a place of an enjoyable worship in the work of serving her Lord. I believe it brought Martha great delight to serve Jesus at this meal. I think we see in Martha one who is living out her worship of Jesus in a unique way. A unique way that God has gifted her. I think Martha shows us a portrait of those who worship Jesus as, as those who enjoy worshiping him. True worship isn't concerned with the extravagance of the offering that we bring before the Lord. Jesus is concerned with our hearts and the manner in which we bring our offering of worship before him. And this was true for both Martha and for Mary. Martha's example doesn't discount or remove the command of Scripture to give financially to the Lord, as we might, we might tend to think here or be tempted to think here. No, no through Martha and Mary, we see examples of, of, of both. And it, it, it gives us an example of how we are to serve gratefully and, and extravagantly and how we are to serve joyfully and giving to the Lord. Martha's example beckons us to a place where we enjoy giving and joyfully give all of ourselves to the Lord through our service and worship. So we see through Mary and we see through Martha these acts of worship. It was G. Campbell Morgan who said, God seeks and values the gifts we bring him. Gifts of praise, thanksgiving, service, and material offerings. In all such giving at the altar, we enter into the highest experiences of fellowship. But the gift is acceptable to God in measure to which the one who offers it is in fellowship with him in character and conduct. So Mary and Martha 
through Mary and Martha, we don't see two mutually exclusive ways of worshiping the Lord. Instead, we're, we're shown an all-encompassing view of the shape of our worship, both extravagant and enjoyable. We see yet a third portrait, I think, of worship. And that's of Lazarus. Lazarus witnesses of Jesus in verses 9 through 11 are Lazarus witnesses about Jesus. But it's his life that is giving witness to Jesus in verses 9 through 11. Two things happened as a result of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. People believed in Jesus on account of Lazarus. They saw him. They saw the work and the testimony of Christ in Lazarus's life, and they believed because of the testimony and the power of Christ at work in Lazarus. The gospel writers don't record any words from the lips of Lazarus throughout the gospel. And in one sense, they didn't have to. Everyone knew his regeneration. Everyone knew and heard of the story of how Jesus had raised him from the dead. His regeneration was proof, his being brought to life was proof to all who saw him. And that though he was dead, now he lived. The point isn't that we should witness at all times and if necessary use words. I think that's a bad model for evangelism. I think the takeaway for us is is that our lives, our actions, our words ought to demonstrate a radically different message than that of the world. Our lives ought to be different. We ought to be giving off light in the midst of darkness. Our lives should be glowing testimonies of the light of Christ within. The contrast of light and darkness is most evident in Lazarus's life. And so if, if, if Mary shows us extravagant worship and Martha shows us enjoyable service, I think Lazarus shows us an, an enlightened witness. And for you and I, what we should see from the life of Lazarus is he is one who has been given life. He has been regenerated. He's been brought forth from the grave. And, and it's a picture for us to see of what God in Christ has done in all of the lives of those who have believed in Christ by faith and profess faith in him. This is the work of regeneration in the life of the believer and the witness of the believer to see others come into the kingdom of God is part of God's command and call in our lives. Listen, brothers and sisters, we are not to be simply idle sitting by. In this race of Christianity, we're to be engaging for the gospel of Christ. We're to be speaking and proclaiming the truth of God's word. We are to be giving testimony of the way that Christ has regenerated us. We are to worship him with extravagance. We ought to worship him with a joy. It should be enjoyable as we come to worship our Lord Jesus. And we know that by the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives, Christ has illumined our mind to understand. He has brought light into our world. He has transformed our darkness into light. As a blind man received sight and as Lazarus walked out of the grave, so Christ has risen and he has given us life. The dead man now lives because of Christ's work on the cross. 
And because of Christ's work on the cross, each of us who have professed faith in Christ are able to say, though I was dead in trespasses and sin, Christ has redeemed my life. The transformation Jesus brought to Lazarus points forward to the transformation and life-giving power of Jesus in our lives. You see that? Well, the second, the second thing that happened as a result of Lazarus's witness to Jesus and the work that Christ had done in Lazarus's life was the chief priest planned to kill him. They wanted to take him out. They couldn't silence him. They couldn't, they couldn't put behind them the work that God had done in Christ to raise Lazarus from the dead. So they simply said, let's, let's get rid of him. Let's, let's execute him. And so they were concocting a plan to take his life. But, you know, I, I have to believe that though they plot to make Lazarus a martyr, there's, a, there's this thought within my mind that Lazarus must have understood their threats as powerless against the all-powerful work of Christ because Jesus had conquered death and given him life and given him victory, you see? And Jesus does this ultimately when he rises from the grave and ascends to the Father. And so their threats against Lazarus, what can they do? Man's threats against the believer today, what can man ultimately do? Who can separate us from the love of God in Christ? Neither death, nor tribulation, nor persecution, nor famine, nor nakedness, nor peril, nor sword, anything. Nothing. Go read Romans 8, 31 through 39 and see nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. So here's a question. How are we challenged by Mary's extravagant worship? How is it that Mary's extravagant worship challenges us personally? How does her extravagant gift before the Lord challenge us? How are we challenged by Martha's enjoyable service? Have we gotten to a place where we are loathing serving? May it never be. May we catch a fresh glimpse of how, how Martha is enjoying serving her Lord. How are we challenged by Lazarus's enlightened witness? Would our corporate worship gatherings be any different today if these three characters described our lives more consistently? I pray that it would be our chief aim and desire that as we worship Jesus, we would experience the joy of exalting Christ like Mary and Martha and even Lazarus. Deeply immersed in meditation during a church service, an Italian poet named Dante failed to kneel at the appropriate moment. His enemies hurried to the bishop and demanded Dante's punishment for his sacrilege. Dante defended himself when he was asked about this, and he said, if those who had accused me had their eyes and minds on God, as I had, they too would have failed to notice events around them, and they most certainly would not have noticed that I was doing something other than what they were doing. You know, this seems to be the case for Judas. In contrast to the extravagant worship, Judas cries out, this is economic waste. In contrast to the extravagant worship we see in Mary, he is calling and saying this is economic waste. The character of Judas doesn't need much commentary. I think we're pretty much all aware of, of 
of the character of Judas. Verse 4 tells us that he was he was a betrayer, one of the disciples who was intending to betray him. Verse 5 tells us he was the criticizer. He asked this question, why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to poor people? We could have done so much with with this money, a whole year's wage. Could have gone so far. Verse 6 tells us he was a thief. As the one who held the money box or the money bag, he would pilfer from it and he would thieve out of it. In fact, if you look up the name Judas in the dictionary, what you'll find is the first the first definition says Judas Iscariot, Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples who betrayed Jesus. The second definition says a person treacherous enough to betray a friend, a traitor. We've even come to understand the name Judas to be representative of one who is a traitor, one who stabs someone in the back. But before we jump on the bandwagon of being critical toward Judas, realize that it's possible that many church members and even leaders today might echo a a similar complaint that Judas echoed. In fact, if we read Matthew's account in Matthew 26, we see that he indicates that disciples, the disciples, not just Judas, the disciples were indignant at Mary's act. In fact, they said, why this waste? <laughs> Similar statements have been made by many today. Statements like, we, we, should do the, we should do the godly thing and strategize how that money might advance the work of the gospel in the world. Or, or we could fill, uh, we, we could feed we could feed the hungry, we could house the homeless, we could support missionaries and, and gospel work all across the world. But here's the thing, what Judas and the disciples failed to see is that Mary's worship isn't about economic justice. It's about theological awareness. She is aware of the presence of God in the flesh right among her, right in her midst. And she will have nothing else but to lay all she has before him. She comes with a radical extravagance in her abandonment. And so Jesus defends Mary. He corrects Judas and perhaps the disciples. In verse 7 he says, therefore, let her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. She understands Jesus' death is fast approaching. And her act of worship is seen by Jesus as anointing his body in preparation for his coming death. And what we see in Mary is we see one who gives extravagantly. But her extravagant gift pales in comparison to the gift she will receive in return. For the joy that she knows from Christ her Savior is a joy that surpasses any extravagant gift she could ever bring to her Lord. And so here's the thing. John intends for us to see a contrast between Judas and Mary. Judas saw Jesus as a ladder to advance his own ambitions, and he betrayed Jesus. Mary saw Jesus as the ultimate goal of her existence, and she worshipped him. Judas sealed his fate as a thief who robbed from Jesus and betrayed him. Mary sealed her fate as a true worshiper who offered her very best and believed the Son of God to be God the Son. And so Jesus says in verse 8, You always have 
You always have the poor with you, but you don't always have me. For Mary, it boiled down to one thing. And it was this, a desire to glorify God. Mary's thought, is there a gift too extravagant for my boy? What a fitting expression of gratitude and and glory and surrender. A question we might ask ourselves today is, can we duplicate the gift of Mary? Is it it possible to cherish and honor Jesus today in in a world which says in, in, in ways that seems extravagant? Is it possible to do that? challenge us as a congregation to consider that as we consider even this next step in our journey as a congregation as we consider uh, a sanctuary because the the building we are in is is physically wearing out and so I, I would challenge us to to ask that question it's not that we don't want to minister to the poor in our community it's not that we don't want to minister around the world It's just a fitting question that we should ask. Is there a gift too extravagant? You think about going through Europe, if you've been and you've seen some of the the cathedrals that are there and you walk in and you see extravagance. (laughs) I mean, you look at this cathedral and it's extravagant. Think about the purpose. Does it bring glory to God as your eyes are drawn heavenward? Do you see the the glory of are you pointing to see the glory of God as you as you walk into a place like that? You you experience extravagance. It's a great question for us to consider. I would argue for us that Mary's extravagant worship of the Lord is an act of worship worthy of our consideration. Dr. Robert Schuler was on a whirlwind book promotion tour. He was visiting eight cities in four days, and it was exhausting work. In addition to his normal duties as a pastor, Schuler reviewed his schedule with his secretary, uh, and and she reminded him that he was scheduled to have lunch with the winner of a charity raffle. Schuler was suddenly sobered when he found out the winner of the raffle, uh, who it was, for he happened to know that the $500 the person had bid to have lunch with him represented that person's entire life savings. The winner was his own teenage daughter. (laughs) For her, it was an extravagant gift. She just longed to be in his presence. What are we willing to bring before the Lord as we enter his presence? Do we understand the great price our Savior paid to redeem our lives from death? Is there a gift too extravagant for God? I would submit to you there's not. I want to challenge us this morning as we continue to process and worship the Lord through a time of singing. Cry out to God. (laughs) Worship him from the depths of your heart. If you're not right with the Lord, repent. Repent of sin. Confess your need for Christ as Savior. If you don't know Christ as Lord, confess your need for him. Repent of sin and, and place your faith and trust in him. I pray this morning that the Lord speaks to us and encourages us through his word. May we be encouraged as God's people to enjoy his presence, to 
to be enlightened witnesses, and to be extravagant worshipers. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your good hand in our lives, and we worship you this morning. And it is our great desire to bring an offering of praise before you. Not only, not only as we come and participate in the offering in a moment, but just our, let our words, our thoughts, our work, our service, our fellowship today, let it, let it all bring you glory and praise and let it be a time of great worship as we join our hearts together. Unify us, Father. Continue to unify us in our, in our mission to make disciples of all nations for the good of all people and for your glory. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Would you stand?